way. So we're going to read Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, and we'll read to verse 21, and then we'll pray. Jesus says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Father, it is a a difficult and, and, and tricky thing to maintain this balance in terms of, of saying, yes, we have these things on earth which you have called us to be good stewards of, and yet they are not to become the focus of our life. We, we have these gifts from you that you've given to us. It, it would be easy to, to take on the spirit of Adam and to say, you're the one who gave me this. It's your fault that the struggle is there. But that would be an error. And so we pray that you would preserve us, Lord, from the conflicting desires of our heart. We, help that you would, we pray that you would help us to see that gifts given by you are to be used, but used wisely. That, that those treasures which you have entrusted to us are a blessing from you and they are good in themselves but we as we receive them fallen as we are they can so easily become a curse and a snare and so we pray that you would help us father to walk in step with you uh, to look to you and to ask you over and over again daily, moment by moment, if necessary. Father, help us, help me to think about this rightly. Help me to to see this the way that that you see it. Help me to view my my money and my car and my job and my my family and my my food and my, my things. Help me to view all of these things through your eyes that I might live in a way that is good and proper and right before you. Help me to honor you in all that I do. Help us to cultivate our heart so that our treasure will be in the right place. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, I found it mildly disturbing that uh, there is a clutter hoarding scale out there. You may not know this. If you've watched any episodes of Hoarders or any of the the TV shows that that deal with this, uh, what could be considered a mental health epidemic, uh, that that, that, that professional organizers who, who I think like, oh, it'd be so nice to hire a professional organizer to help me like, you know, keep my surfaces clean and, you know, get all of my, my materials that I need for doing projects of, of any kind, my study stuff, my art stuff, my tools. If somebody would just come in and help me get that clean, what's happening is the professional organizers run into people and meet people who, who are battling with levels of, of clutter that are, are, are truly unmanageable. And so they came together and they invented a clutter hoarding scale. Now, when I heard about this, it wasn't like, oh, that's bothersome to me. That shouldn't exist. I thought, I'm going to land somewhere on this spectrum, and that scares me. Uh, I have been accused of, 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 of being a hoarder of books and papers and pens and, you know, things like that. And I thought, like, I will be undone by this scale. And, and so, 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 you know, I, I, I resisted looking at it for like 30 seconds, and then I Googled it and pulled it up and read it, and, I, and, and, and I'm on here somewhere. That's about as much of me as you're gonna hear. Uh, there are five levels of the hoarding scale. Level one 
uh, says that all doors and stairways of the home are accessible, right? You, you, you push open a door and the door swings freely. You're not, you're not banging up against things. Normal household pet activity with light evidence of rodents or pests. Hmm, this, is, this means you're on the scale if, you're, if your house looks like this. One to three pets, pet accidents evident. We dodged that bullet. No pet accidents. Clutter, not excessive. Home has normal, healthy housekeeping and safe and evident sanitation. No odors. You jump to level two and things get a little worse. Level three says visible clutter outdoors, including items normally stored indoors, such as televisions and sofas, <laughs> right? Two or more broken appliances, inappropriate excessive use of electrical cords, and light structural damage. Pets exceed local limits. Stagnant fish tanks. Neglected reptile aquariums. Bird cages full of droppings. Audible rodent evidence. Think about what that means. That you hear rodents. Light infestations of insects, medium amount of spider webs. I'm kind of in my world, living with Nancy Meyer. Like any spider webs are are a are, are an extreme amount of spider webs. You know, so I don't know what media a medium. You know, give me a medium sized helping of of spider webs. It's hard. Indoor clutter leads to narrow hall and stair pathways. One bedroom or bathroom isn't fully usable. A small amount of obvious hazardous substances or spills. Excessive dust, dirty bed linens, no recent vacuuming or sweeping. Strong unpleasant odors throughout the house. <laughs> Level five. We're going somewhere with this. Think, 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 think about this. Obvious structural damage, broken walls, disconnected electrical service, no water service, no working sewer or septic system, standing water inside the house, fire hazards, hazardous materials exceed local ordinances. Pets are dangerous to occupants and guests. Rodents in sight, mosquito or other insect infestation and regional critters such as squirrels inside the home. Kitchen and bathroom unusable due to clutter. Occupant is living or sleeping outside the home. Human waste, rotting food, more than 15 aged canned goods with buckled surfaces inside the home. Uh, think about the, the, the way that the scale progressed. Now, I think that I think that many of us, as we hear these, we hear these signs or markers, there's there's a relief that moves to, to amusement because the, the bullet doesn't hit the target, right? Like, I, I'm, I'm coming in in terms of my own personal, like, papers and book clutter. I'm somewhere like one or two, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm good. There are times when, when there is significant, as, as Nancy and I say, narrowing of the passages, like when you try to get into my office because I've just kind of gone in there and dropped some stuff. Um, but, but you're constantly trying to clear the undergrowth, you know, get books up, off, and away, and clear surfaces. It's, it's, it's a battle. When we get, when we get to, the, to the place of unlivability in, in the home for, for some of these folks, um, it's, it's humorous because that's not us. But then we put ourselves in their shoes and we think, what must it, like to, what must it be like to live that way? What must it be like to not be able to throw things away, to hold so tightly to garbage, to find security in, 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 in trash, to not, to not understand and feel that, that these uh, creatures which you're keeping in your home are harmful to you, uh, and to think that it's completely normal. And if, if, if we don't feel that it's normal to be able to be unable to break out of that place. Hoarding means that the sheer volume of things and the habit of, of holding on to those things will eventually crush and kill. When Jesus is, is speaking about 
true observance of the way God has called us to live, he condemns hoarding. He condemns it. We see it in Matthew 6, 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and when thieve, where thieves break in and steal. Now this is not level 5 hoarding that he is condemning or level 3 hoarding. He's not talking about you know, uh, uh, an unhealthy situation physically in the home that he's condemning. When he, when he looks at the world, Jesus sees people protecting their stuff and their status and knows that, that there's, that's going to come to a bad end, that it's going to go nowhere. Think about how we try to protect our stuff, right? You, you probably have more than one, maybe two, three, or four complicated passwords if you use things like bill pay or you keep any kind of records online, right? You've got a way of, of guarding that. You have ID cards that enable you to, to take your money out of the bank, and you've got a code that's associated with that. So if anybody gets a hold of your card, they can't, they can't get your money. There are, there are vaults in the United States that are guarded and locked with fingerprints and retina scans, right? To protect our stuff, to make us feel secure. Now, back in Jesus' day, food was money. And in some sense, it still is. We, we have very little realization and connection with this. Um, although when a severe winter weather event is coming, you know, when they, when they put out the advisory that, that we're going to have a little bit of snow, everybody rushes to the store for food security, right? Got to have milk, got to have toilet paper, got to have a couple other things. I don't know what you make with all that stuff, right? You know, what is it that you're, you're cooking? But you got you to gotta have your basics because food is security, Food is, is money. And back in the day, they would dry out the grain and they'd pile it up in a silo. And you know what would happen to the level of food? It would slowly but surely decrease because moths and rats would get into that food store and would slowly whittle it away. Ah, but if we convert that food into cash, sell the food, receive money, right? hide the money someplace in our house, someplace secret. Thieves then learn that you wear nice clothes. You have the, the finest donkey, horse, and camel parked out in your front yard. You've got money. You know, I'm real careful, like at Christmas, I always like I always box up, try to try to hide the boxes of the stuff that we got, you know? Like, I don't want anybody thinking you know, look what they got. And then they come into our house and try to take our stuff, you know? Got to be, gotta be careful. Don't put out the image that you've got anything, anything good. Or somebody will try to come and take it from you. There's an intense self-focus and self-absorption about protecting ourself and our resources. And in part, here's the danger. It's because... We ought to be doing that. Does that make sense? Like, like I'm, I'm a dad. There are four people who are looking to me to make sure that there's food in the house. Right? You know, my wife and I, we consider the budget. She, she shops so that there's food in the house when it's needed. And so that's a good thing to be a provider. But it can become self-absorbed and obsessive. Where, where we think, I've got to have my security figured out six months from now, a year from now, five years from now, 30 years from now. I need to know that I'm, I'm never going to be in a place of, of trouble in my life for the next 30, 40, 50 years. And what is a, a good thing, a positive role that's been given to us by God, a positive behavior, of planning and being a good steward shifts to become a source of anxiety and, 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 and self-absorption. The president of the seminary that I went to, Dr. George Murray, said that he had one sermon that he would 
he would preach. Because when, when the pastor of a very large, wealthy church would go on vacation, they would say, go and find someone to fill the pulpit. And they don't just get anyone. They, they call around and they get a doctor. They get the, uh, the president of a university to come and speak. And so Dr. Murray would get invited to these large churches. And he said he knew he was only going to get invited once. They weren't going to invite him back. And so he had his one sermon. And this was the sermon that he would preach. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Jesus said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. Dr. Murray has like this amazing like way of, of telling a story and engaging and getting intensely emotional and like you just get you get wrapped up and absorbed in what he's saying. And so he, he begins to tell the parable about a man who had an abundant harvest. And the man says, what will I do? I have no place to store my crops. So he has an idea. You know, the light bulb goes off and he says, this is what I'll do. This is a perfect idea. I will tear down my old barns. They're too small, not enough place uh, to store all of my stuff. And, and what I'll do is I'll build bigger barns with more places to store my stuff. And there I'll store my surplus grain and I will sit back in my easy chair in front of my 4K, whatever that is, television, and I will say to myself, you have plenty of grain stored up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's what he said to himself. But God said to him, you fool. Dr. Murray says, this is, this is where it all, like, now the crowd is changing. <laughs> this very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And now, CIU is a school that predominantly trains missionaries. And he said that he would then begin to tell the, the young people and the people of the church, you, you must give your life for Christ. It's not just, it's not just about consuming religion. You know, and he said, this is what, this is what your, your parents will tell you, young people. Go and meet the right person, get the right degree, get a good job, get married, lay up treasure for yourself. And he said, you will have almost completely miss the purpose of life for your, for, uh, that, that God has laid out there for you. Because very few of you are called to stay in one place. We are all called to go out into the mission field. And he's like, then it was on. They were angry. But think about the, the, the loving care of Jesus in warning people not to lay up treasures on earth. They're, they're fighting words in, in, in some contexts, among some groups of people. It's, it's, a, it's a bad thing to tell people, give away, sell everything that you've got and follow Jesus because they will think that that is crazy. But we're called to take risks for Jesus and to trust in God and to not find our dependence and security in, in things. The things of earth will get nibbled away by the moths and the rats and they'll get stolen by thieves. And in that sense, they are not true and lasting treasure. Jesus finishes the parable by saying, this is how it will be with Whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. The, the struggle and the problem with storing up for ourselves things and treasures on earth is that, is that the, 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 the stewardship that we're called to practice as, as human beings to, 
to make sure that we plan ahead and to, to ensure that those who we're responsible for have what they need, it shifts and turns into the anxiety of security that is disconnected from God. And we are saying when we pile up and we say, this is how I will mitigate any risk and avoid any difficulty, we're saying, in effect, God, I have no need of you. Listen to the, to the, to the imagery that Paul invokes here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I'd spent a better part of the day here yesterday, went home, I don't know why this happens, drank a cup of coffee, sat down in a chair at home, and I started to fall asleep. And the thing happened when you start to fall asleep. Has anybody had this, this you're, you're starting to fall asleep, and suddenly you are on a tree in the backyard of your house that you grew up in, and you're walking, and all of a sudden you're falling, and your head is simultaneously falling, and then you jerk back awake. Like, who likes falling? Plunging. Ah, and it's like, oh, I'm safe. Yes, oh, I'm home. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. It's not an intentional, you know what, I hate God and have no need of him. It's a wandering away. That, that, that good stewardship shifts into self-sufficiency and security, and we just kind of walk off from following Jesus. They've wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs vivid imagery of stabbing oneself over and over with pain. As the philosopher Princess Leia once told <laughs> the commander of the Death Star, Grand Moff Tarkin, the more you tighten your grip, the more, she says, star systems will slip through your fingers. We, we hold on to the things of earth and we say, this will make me safe. This will give me security. And we wander away from the one who provides security and sufficiency and safety. The exact opposite of what we intend to happen happens. Jesus is saying here, do not hoard the things of earth. But wait. Listen, this is interesting. This is not hoarding bad, okay? Although this was hoarding bad, we now move to what he says next, where Jesus is going to say hoarding good, all right? That's the way Jesus talks. Jesus is like, this is very bad, and we're like, oh, okay, I get it. And then he changes, and we're like, wait a minute, I don't get it. He, does, he says this, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy. You know, my association with moths is this, right? I am... I am comfortable, I am sitting, I am, I am writing something on a, my, my computer, or I am reading a book, and there will be a moth. And Nancy will say, there is a moth. <laughs> and then I have to get up and kill it. You know, and I'm like, now I have to stand on a bench, now I have to get on a chair, now I have to do the thing where I wait at the light, you know, and he comes out, and I'm like, ha, like Mr. Miyagi with a napkin, you know, trying to get him. Like, there will be no moths in heaven. There will be no, no vermin in heaven. And there are no thieves who can break in and steal and take what you've piled up. Now, I want you to see the, the hinge here. It's not, it's not just location that's the issue. Jesus says, don't store up for yourself uh, treasures on earth. Store them, store them up in heaven. The location change is not the only thing that we ought to notice. We ought to notice that the self ought to notice that the self focus is still there. 
Location, yes, indeed is what determines value, but Jesus is not saying don't be self-interested. He's saying here self-interest is, is still in view. It's still in focus. Did you see that? Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. We might think, oh, hoarding bad, right? I need to I need to deny myself and to never think about myself and always think of others and, and always, always think of God first. And it's so hard. I'm so focused on myself. Jesus says here, store up for yourselves treasures. Treasures in heaven. But store up for yourselves treasures. Self-focus is still in view here. What we need to focus on is, is that what is of true value. And then when we understand what's of true value, as told to us by our creator, we then pursue it for ourselves. Self-interest is the source of motivation. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we keep going. But let's think about what the Bible is going to say is of true value and what will last in heaven. We value money here on earth because it provides security against tragedy, security against disaster. And so we say we need as much money as possible to minimize as much risk as possible. And we all know that no one can take it with them, right? And so, so we know that there's a worm in the apple of money. We also know that money can't cure disease, right? And so, so we, 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 we're, seeking to, we're seeking to plug the hole in the bottom of the boat, but it's not the only hole that's there. There's the, there's the problem of, of our own mortality. There's a problem of the fact that we, we get what we want so often, right? You, you hear these stories about people who, who are given vast amounts of money. They achieve amazing levels of success and popularity, and then they're miserable. So understanding that what is of, of true value from the one who made us is of incredible importance. The manual of your car says change the oil every 3,000 miles. They're not just like in cahoots with the people who change oil. Like, oh, let's maintain this business strategy where we'll keep people coming back for useless service, right? Just, just count changing your oil and checking your oil level as count that as useless and see what happens. Mm -hmm. I have been there. <laughs> what is of true value as recommended by our creator? First, the value of knowing Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The work of, of Jesus on our behalf is, is of true and infinite value. That makes him of, of true and infinite value to us. He was rich in heavenly blessings and power and righteousness and goodness. And he took on the form of a servant. He embraced a, 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 an embarrassing death. Death as a criminal. Naked. Nailed to a cross. Condemned as a criminal to die. And he became poor in terms of his reputation that we who who understand our own spiritual poverty when we look to him when we say i deserve to be there i deserve to be punished for my sins not him he's righteous god counts him as dying for us paying the penalty for our sins and we are clothed in his righteousness the value of knowing Jesus Christ is that though he was rich, he became full poor for our sake so that in his poverty, we could become rich. There's an exchange. Imagine we meet Jesus at a place, Dunkin' Donuts, and we say, we say, look, I got a lot of stuff that I don't want. And he says, well, what is it? And we put on the table all of our sins and wickedness and unrighteousness. And he says, yeah, I'll take that. 
I, I, need, I need something in return. What do you need? Oh, I need whatever you have. Well, what I have is perfect obedience to God every single moment. Yeah, I'll take that. That's what I need. He embraced poverty. He took our sins upon himself and died for them because of them so that we could receive his righteousness. There's tremendous value of the word hidden in our hearts. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. There's tremendous value. Now here's, here's the Here's one of the, the problems of, of familiarity. When you, when you don't know the value of something, you, you don't know what you have until it's gone. What is that, a poison song, Cinderella? Who sang that back in the 80s, right? You know, they, they turned it into uh, some kind of trite proverb, but it's true. If we don't know the value of something, we won't cling tightly to it. My, my, my youngest got an Amazon gift card. Look, Dad, Amazon dollars, right? And then he proceeded to stick it in his back pocket. I'm like, no, 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 give that to me, right? You're in a giant room full of people. Your name's not on it. No one's going to know it's yours. And he stuck it in his back pocket. And as he's walking away, it falls on the floor. And I'm like, that is $25 from Amazon. Like, that's, guard that. You know, so I'm like walking through Christmas Eve, you know, like, like, trying to get to the gift card before anybody else is like, that's mine, you know, some kid. No, ours, right? <laughs> we have the word of God. It's everywhere. It's in hotel rooms. People, people put it there so that, so that people can, can turn to the, to the nightstand drawer when they're, when they're suffering or struggling because they know the Bible's going to be there. We have it on our phones. We have it in, in, in paper copies. We've got it everywhere. And yet it's such a tremendous asset. We're so used to having it that we can just be like, oh, I've got the Bible. It's on my phone. I put it in my pocket. And we don't treat it like it's a thing of tremendous value. We won't know what it's like. We won't know until we truly need it. That we've neglected it. Let's, let's, not, let's become convinced of the value of God's word. And focus on it. There is value of good deeds done. Paul tells Timothy this. Command them, speaking of the rich in the, the church in Ephesus where, where Timothy was pastoring, he says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Now, we might think, yeah, the rich ought to learn that. They ought to learn that, those one percenters, you know. You know what? We are the rich. We are the rich. When you go to Africa and you see that people are living on $2 a day. You know what? I mean, $2 is like $14 in American money there, but go, I challenge you to try to live on $14 a day. We live on much more. And that's just part of the world. The majority of the population of the world lives on less than a dollar a day. We have it so good here. There's value in doing good. Jesus says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to take the resources that are at their disposal and to use them to accomplish the good which God commands, not to earn God's affection or to earn God's stamp of approval. You are holy and righteous and good. No, we get that from Jesus. But to walk in the footsteps that that God has laid out for us that he might say of us, you are walking in the way that I've commanded you to. It's not to earn it, it's to demonstrate that, that, the, that the life that God has put in us is really there. We're, we're, we're validating God's testimony about us that we are his children. We're to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. Finally, there's value in dependent faith. 
Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, Paul is speaking to a church that is small and is divided and has little, and yet they have sent some of what they have to him to help him advance the gospel. And he writes them this little letter to say thank you for their gift, which is good to do. It's polite to say thank you when somebody gives you a gift. And Paul says, thank you that you gave what you had to me for my support so that I can preach the gospel. We're partners. And then he says this to those who have sacrificed and have put themselves at risk. He says, my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. What's the, the, the richness there is the value of dependent faith. I was speaking to a, a, a church. Uh, my friend and I went up to, to Harrington to speak to a church there, a church that's lost its pastor and lost a number of people in the church, and they're, in, they're just in, in, in difficult and desperate shape. And I said, listen, you might not want to hear this because nobody, nobody likes to be in that place where they're feeling absolutely at risk and terrified. What is our future? What will happen? But you know what happens at this time? God can show up and you will give him the glory when he does. Right? Right? They, they, the, the Jews were told, march around Jericho once a day for six days and on the seventh day go around it seven times and then make a bunch of noise and then the walls will come down and they're like, we're going to look really stupid doing this. God shows up. When, when, they're, when they're told that they're going to cross into the promised land before the battle of Jericho, they're, they're, the, the priests are told, get into all your fancy dress, all these treasures that you've just built for inside the tabernacle that you've been worshiping around, and get the ark, the most precious thing that you've got, and walk into the river. It's not like they're standing there, like at 9.30, the water's going to stop, and then we're going to walk through. No, they're told, step in. Not, it's not, this is not like the kitty end of the pool. The water's zipping by. And when it says, when the priest's feet touch the water, priests, plural. Now, I wasn't there. I didn't see it happen. But they say the priest's feet, that's four guys. I'm thinking the guy who went in first on either side was probably like, this is not a good idea. We're going to lose this thing. And then the other two guys got in and the water stopped, Right? God showed up at the point of, of risk, of dependence. Paul says that, 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 that we experience, this is a paraphrase here, this is a Keith Meyer version, because I wasn't prepped to say this, but, but he says that, that, that God brings life from the dead in 2 Corinthians. He's talking about the fact that he was, he was near despair, the despair of life in, on one of his missionary journeys when he was in Asia and and. He was, he was at the point of death. And he says, the reason I was allowed to go there, to that place, is so that our dependence would not be on ourselves, but in God who brings life from the dead. You've got to be dead in order to have a resurrection, right? You've got to be in need, and you've got to be admitting your need and saying, I depend on you. I have nothing but you in order for God's intervention to be glorious. Right? So many of us, we live our Christian life like, like this. It's, it's, there's 98% of my life that I can handle, and I'll handle that on my own, and then this last little 2% bit is where I need to pray. Right? How do, our, how do our situations and difficulties in our life operate? We get as far as we can under our own power. We get like halfway or three-quarters up the mountain in our view probably like 10 steps up the mountain and then we realize our need and we begin to pray no there's a value of dependent faith of saying god i know that i've preached a hundred thousand whatever not that many sermons i know that i've taught Sunday school over and over. I know that I've memorized the word. I know that I've resisted this temptation. I know that I've shared the gospel. I know that I've, I've given. But yet again, once again, would you give me faith to act? Would you give me faith to trust in you? There's a value to dependent faith. And Jesus is saying that value determines destiny. Hoarding of one kind is condemned. Laying up treasures on earth 
It's not the laying them up for yourselves on earth that's the problem. It's that they're on earth. Because he says, lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So ask yourself this question. A soul-searching question not meant to be tricky or like clever or to condemn you, but just to take an evaluation of where you are at this moment. Christian psychologist Larry Crabb calls this the red dot. You know, um, unless you've got an app on your phone that you use to navigate the mall, when you go to the mall and you're trying to figure out where the store that you're going to is, you go to the big plexiglass thing and you look for the red dot that has the arrow that says, you are here, right? And once you know where you are, then you know where you need to go. So here's the question in terms of destiny and value. Do you believe that you're, you're made for peanuts or for a greater destiny? Do you know they trap spider monkeys for sale in pet stores? This is true. At least it's what I understand to be true. The spider monkey is caught. They take a glass jar or a porcelain vessel and they put it on the forest floor and they put a couple peanuts in it. And so the, the monkey narrows his hand like this to get it down the neck of the glass jar, and then he grabs the peanuts at the bottom, and he holds them tight, because that's what he wants to put in his mouth. And you know what happens then? He can't get his hand out of the jar. He can't lift the jar. And if he tries to lift the jar and run away, he'd probably look, you know, he'd probably be dragging it behind him. It would be difficult for him. And then they come along, and they grab him, and they put him in a cage. Chained down to the forest floor by the desire for food. And so we need to ask and assess ourselves. Are we chained down from, from a truly dependent faith by a desire for security or for the, for the, the need to preserve our stuff? or to preserve the, the comfort of our life. What is it that, that is, is chaining us? God is, is calling us to a greater destiny. God is, is saying, here is a mission to live out, to go and to live in my power and my strength, and to go and to make disciples, and to love me and to love others the way that I love selflessly giving over and over and over again. And we're like, yeah, I want to do that, but we've got one hand in the jar and we're chained. We can't move because we're not willing to let go of the things of earth. What is it that keeps someone who runs running? I have no idea or I would still be running. It's probably going to be soon that I'm going to start putting my, my posts back on Instagram and Facebook like, you know, no pain, no gain, and so I'm not gaining, where I like go out and I try to run, and I'm like, you know, no, I just don't feel like it. There was, um, there was a, uh, I can't remember what song I was listening to once on the radio as I was jogging along trying to look impressive. Uh, to the people who are passing by, you know, like uh, wheezing and then being like, oh, I'm like Rocky when the cars came. But the, but the song basically said, like, stop. And so I was just like, I obey. I am not going to run any further. I think that runners run, we can talk about this later, they embrace pain now because reward and glory come later. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, do you not Know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. The point of the race is to win. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, last. but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Listen, if you win the like 100-mile bike race in the, what is it, the century thing in, in Salisbury, which is actually only like 98 miles or something now, um, you know, I'm like, change the name. What would that, what's, the, what's the weird word, like the sesquicentennial, whatever it is, of 98? 
You know, make it, make it sound interesting like that. Be, be honest about what you're asking people to do. That person will win and all the, the bikers and whoever will remember for a while and then they'll forget. We've forgotten the great athletes of Greece. We've, we've forgotten in large part the great sports figures of yesteryear. We remember some of them and preserve them, but eventually their names fade because crowns that can be won here do not last. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. We need to learn to let go of the peanuts so we can get our hands out of the jar and pursue Christ. Therefore, Paul says, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not run like you ran, Keith, right? I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. Imagine if you got into the ring with a Mike Tyson, right? You know, and you're like, you're like facing this way and punching and he's coming at you from this direction. That's going to be like a seven second fight instead of a 47 second fight. You better hit him while you have a chance, right? I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. Paul is saying here, we need to pay attention and to discipline our lives and to live intentionally and thoughtfully and not just go with the flow of the world. There are three things that last forever. And they are God, his word, and the souls of men and women. Philippians 3, 7, Paul says, whatever were gains to me, I now count loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from obeying the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Can you hear his heart here? I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. How do, how do you get that? Do you get that? Like, you know, by, by, by posting cultivated pictures of Bible study on Instagram? No. Do you get that by, by you know, uh, how, how do you get that? You get that by being in a place of, of risk where, where you, could, you could lose everything. Right? By, by saying we're going, we're going to risk, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna change, we're going to let go, we're going we're gonna to leave behind the things, the places where we find our security and only find security in Christ, it's going to be scary. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, to become like him in his death. To leave behind everything that will have no eternal value. This doesn't mean, you know, don't, don't keep any money in your bank account for feeding your family or for, you know, paying for medical expenses or any of those things. But, but, but how big is the mountain? Right? How big is the, the appetite that fuels all the things that we, that we think we need? And then we, we come around and we're like, man, I have, I have no money to give to mission. Or we, we say things like, man, I have no time to serve the church. And yet there's a, there's a, there's a place on your phone that you can, you can just look and see where all your battery power went. And it'll, it'll say, you know, you use this much time on the Internet looking at pictures of cats looking at videos of, of little animals doing cute things, you know, engaging in, in meaningless political debate by responding to a post on Facebook. Like, this is an enormous waste of time. No one learns anything or ever changes their position. You can go and see how, how, how you've utilized your data on devices. You can go back in your viewing history and see how many TV shows you've binge watched. And it's like, wow, do you really have no time? You've got the same 24 hours that Paul had. We have the same 24 hours that Jesus had. Well, he was God, right? 
He was also 100% man and 100% God. It's a matter of stewardship and where we find value. If we fill up our lives with things, there will never be room for the most important things to, to get in. God's word is a tremendous value. Psalm 119 verse 10 says, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. And then the last thing of value is the souls of men and women. Luke 16, 9, Jesus says this, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. I don't think that means that, that we earn our way to heaven, although you might hear it and interpret it that way. I think it means that, that we use our resources to win others to Christ so that when we enter eternal dwellings, they are there to welcome us home. And so as we close, I, I want to ask you to just ask the question, where does your treasure lie and where is your heart as a church as the people of god can we come together and in a loving humble way encourage one another sharpen one another embolden one another to burn with a passion for god to to encourage each other to feast not on the garbage of the world but on the good food of god's word and then to open our mouths and to speak the message of life as if the eternal destinies of others depend on it. Because they do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to, to be in your word. We thank you that you speak a hard word to us, Lord, because there's life in those words. The parent who screams at a child to stop running towards traffic is not unloving, even though the words may sound harsh. And so we thank you, Father, for telling us that what is good and what is of infinite value does not live in this world. And we pray that, that we would cultivate hearts that are self-interested for the things of heaven. We focus on the benefit and the blessing of knowing you. That's the way you created us. You created us to crave the reward of knowing you. To crave the, the, the praise that comes when you say, well done. And yet we are too easily satisfied on lesser things. Father, we pray that you would cure our appetite for lesser things and fill us with a desire for the greater good, for you, for your word, and for serving others that they might hear the gospel and know you and spend eternity with you. We thank you for your grace and kindness. We pray your blessing as we sing this last song, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.